how to be a non-ideological, feel-good, religious person. This week I've been thinking about the meaning of gay, feel-good productivity, and the difference between ideology and empirical thinking. Since it's the week between Christmas and New Year's, here are three things I'm thinking about, topics that may inspire future full-length essays. The first one is the meaning of gay, the next frontier in my ongoing engagement with the question of homosexuality and the Christian life. The second is the inspiration and encouragement I've been receiving from Ali Abdal's new book, Feel Good Productivity. The third is the difference between ideology and empirical thinking that I've been trying to formulate. Enjoy. What does gay mean? The other week, I had an interesting Twitter interaction with Grant Hartley. I argued that same-sex attracted, SSA, and gay were synonyms. As a result, Christians shouldn't have a preference between the two, allowing people to admit that they are gay if they are. Grant pushed back, arguing that gay is a term with more of a cultural and historical significance rather than a mere report of one's sexual orientation, like homosexual or same-sex attracted. He mentioned, and I also highlighted, the unique convergence between his view and what I often hear from side Y folks, that gay is a loaded term that means a lot more than that one is same-sex attracted. Here was our conversation, and I'll comment more below. Grant Hartley. Sure, yes, I'm same-sex attracted, but more importantly, I'm gay. Joel Carini. I think the new stakes in the SSA LGBTQ discussion these days are either no one is same-sex attracted or some Christians are gay. Jared Moore's critique of Sam Albury for accepting that he is SSA revealed this shift, and it's correct to shift in this way because SSA and gay are synonyms. Grant Hartley, I would push back against this. I don't think gay and SSA are synonyms because gay has a historical and cultural component that SSA lacks. Joel Carini, thanks for the pushback. Just to show you how I'm thinking about this, my question would be, is there anyone who is SSA who is not gay? Then, for side Y folks, I'm trying to tell them that SSA and gay both refer to orientation, not behavior. Grant Hartley, yeah, I think that it makes sense to say there are SSA folks who are not gay in this more expansive sense. For example, see J. Brian Lauder's I Was Born Homosexual, I Chose to Be Gay, and David Halperin's How to Be Gay, both of which have profoundly influenced me. Joel Carini, thanks for the references. I just pulled up Lauder. I'm going to chew on the convergence between what you're saying and the side-wide position. Smiley face. Strategically, for my purposes, it would be helpful to persuade side Y that gay just means sexual orientation. But we'll see. Grant Hartley. I often find on this issue that I have more in common with critics way further right, with whom I agree that being gay is an expansive thing, but disagree on its goodness, than with moderates, who sometimes think of being gay as just about sexual attraction. Grant Hartley, 
I think that being gay is, or at least can be and often is, quite expansive, involving a unique perspective, a sensibility, a community, a history, a people, a culture. And I think that that is at least partly good, while critics on the far right seem to think it is evil. Joel Carini. Makes a lot of sense. Still, those further right are confused about the expansiveness, usually thinking it implies one is sexually active. On the contrary, in common speech, I'm gay, not straight, merely communicates sexual orientation, and Christians should be fine with it. Recently, Colton Beach, another first-time Revoice attendee this year, was interviewed by Preston Sprinkle, and it was one of the best interviews I've heard on the celibate chaste gay Christian issue. Colton is also a continual source of one-liners about this debate on Twitter. He also recently published a brief Twitter essay in which he asks whether gay Christian is an oxymoron. There, while he mentions the history of the word gay, he echoes my argument that the colloquial usage of gay in our culture is as a synonym for same-sex attracted or homosexual, a reference to one's sexual orientation rather than to anything additional. He also had a recent essay about positive experiences as a gay man in the conservative church, and another, barriers to discipling gay people in the conservative church. In my arguments so far, I've argued that gay is simply a reference to sexual orientation, and that sexual orientation is not a concept or a social construct, but a real psychological phenomenon in the world. This dovetails with my realist and externalist views that the meanings of our words are exhausted by the things they refer to, rather than bearing additional layers of meaning, sense, or baggage. Grant and Colton may be correct that the word gay has this additional cultural history. However, with Frege, I would distinguish the baggage, the feelings, and the impressions people have when they hear the word from its actual meaning, which is a reference to the property of being homosexual in one's sexual orientation. I believe this is the next subject for a lengthier analysis in my ongoing essays on same-sex attraction. After the experience of self-publishing, I am thinking that the essays on same-sex attraction alone could be compiled into a resource for Christians. Feel-good productivity. One of my latest favorites on YouTube is Ali Abdal. Abdal is a 29-year-old YouTuber in the UK who relatively recently left his stable career as a doctor to go full-time on YouTube. His content is focused on productivity, and his business is doing $4 million in revenue a year. His new book, Feel Good Productivity, came out yesterday, and he's started a bit of a podcast tour. I've been loving his interviews. His message is simple. Productivity should feel good. His interview with Chris Williamson is a good place to start because of Williamson's relentless positivity. But his interview with Ryan Holiday of the Daily Stoic was enlightening because of the contrast it showed. In many ways, Holiday and Abdal agreed. Holiday was honest about the limitations and balance having children brings to life, for instance. Abdal mentions that he, though not yet married or expecting any children, has been reading parenting books and thinking about the chosen constraints children bring to life. 
At a certain point in the interview, though, Holiday stands up for the Stoic ideal of buckling down and grinding through difficulty. Abdal's emphasis is more Epicurean, the simple, happy life. We work better when we do work we enjoy or make our existing work into something like an adventure. In the title of another interview, Hard Work is Overrated. Abdal contrasts the hard work and grit that it takes to be a hero with the joy and lack of anxiety required to be a pleasant, normal person. It feels to me like one of the elements of transition from a man's 20s to his 30s is switching from the hero mindset to the normal man, dad mindset. Abdal has also been helpful to me in explaining the role of a social media personality, something I think about even in writing this on the internet at all. Abdal encourages us not to strive to be gurus, especially those of us who are young and would only feel imposter syndrome doing so. Rather, think of yourself as a guide. You are two steps ahead of someone out there, someone who would appreciate hearing your perspective to be led the next step or two of their own path. Another line from Abdal that pops up in the interviews is to be, rather than serious, sincere. Often we procrastinate or get anxiety about productivity when we are taking our task and ourselves too seriously. The solution is not to be cavalier, but to substitute sincerity for seriousness. I found this helpful a couple weeks ago when I approached five highly competent academics to defend my dissertation prospectus. I realized that there would be no help in putting on a pretense of being smarter than I am. The best result and the lowest anxiety would come from committing to be sincere, which means revealing one's imperfections, but putting other people at ease. To my mind, this mindset around productivity and seriousness is part of a change from the Puritan work ethic in general and the academic status-driven mindset in particular. I also think it's part of a more forgiving and gentle Christianity. In my own life this year, I've done some work in counseling to overcome anxiety about productivity that I have often felt. It's discussed in the interviews at some points as a distinct kind of anxiety. Strikingly, some people have expressed being impressed with my productivity this year. I can assure you that I was much busier and perhaps more productive during my master's and PhD coursework. However, a significant substack output a conference presentation, and a prospectus have come this year from a writing habit largely focused upon doing two hours of deep work, writing, five days a week, and on average probably only four. This has felt like accepting a limitation and settling for a rather small amount of work in total. However, I have found that there was about an hour of preparation and probably another hour of wind-down just to complete those two hours of writing well. In a way that contradicts the Puritan work ethic, this work schedule has more or less been what feels good. I've tried working less, and sickness or fatigue sometimes ensures that I work less. But working less doesn't feel as good. I've tried working more, but I can't sustain it. The following day, my brain is fried, and I end up working less to make up for it. 
It's pretty classic for graduate students and academics to struggle in these ways, but I've been grateful to find a level of peace with my kind of productivity. The work is creative and it can't be forced. At the same time, some of the most productive results come from when one is lying in bed or staring out a window. I can't say that I know how to apply these insights to all professions. However, I think all of us could use a dose of feel-good productivity. Order the book here. I have Mine's Arriving Today by 10 p.m. Ideology versus Empiricism I recently wrote on Substack Notes about the difference I see between ideological and empirical thinking. Joel Carini, I think this is the difference between ideology and empirical knowledge. It's a reason I'm always suspicious of social justice, while I think much could be done to bring about more societal justice. In response to Shadow Rebbe, there is, is an advantage to the attitude that justice is always on the side of the oppressed. It saves much effort from finding out who truly has more justice on their side. To illustrate, for several years, I've been trying to process all the events and ideas related to sexual and gender ideology, race, and wokeness. One critique I hear, largely from secular critics of wokeness, is that it is a kind of religion or ideology in a negative sense. Unfortunately, I see a lot of the same features of ideology and religion in the bad sense, in certain Christian circles and intellectual approaches. These groups, like Christian coherentists, presuppositionalists, or worldviewists, tend to offer the following criticism of woke ideology. This ideology is incorrect according to our ideology. Adopt our ideology instead of that ideology. But the very problem seemed to be ideology itself. Adopting Christian ideology, rather than basing belief on empirical evidence, is not the right path. Accordingly, as a religious person, the question is whether Christianity can be something other than a religion or ideology. What is ideology? I think that ideology is a kind of shortcut for thought, adopting a general model of the world and trying to fit everything into that model. Ideology often has a deeply moral component in that it inspires action and sorts the world into good and evil with clarity and obvious distinctions. The obvious danger of ideology on the epistemic level is that the world is a complex place and cannot be known to conform to our model of thought in every case. The criticism often comes that everyone has an ideology. We can't do anything but that. That could even be one way to read the divide between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. Several years ago, the two had a series of discussions in which Harris argued for an objective scientific basis of morality in empirically verifiable standards of well-being. Peterson argued that not even Harris could claim to be free of moral beliefs distinct from science, however. Harris's conception of the two poles of human subjective experience, the height of joy and the depth of suffering, 
which provide us with a topology of the moral landscape, is not itself a deliverance of scientific method, but a narrative, even an eschatology. Peterson was defending the ineliminability of narratival and religious thought. Nevertheless, I want to be able to argue that we should both escape Harris's critique of religious, i.e. ideological moral thought, like that of the Taliban, and embrace a religion in Peterson's sense. Unsurprisingly, I'm enjoying Harris and Peterson's recent conversation. Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris try to find something they agree on. On a related note, Peterson will be speaking in St. Louis on Valentine's Day, so you can guess who I'm bringing to hear him speak. That experience should inspire an essay or two. Happy New Year.